you want to go ahead and turn to Malachi chapter 1, we'll be in verses 6 through 14 this morning. Let me read these for us and then help reacquaint you with, with this book. And then we'll walk through these together, okay? All right. Now, Malachi starts off in verse 6, and he says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Look at this shocking word that he says. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what was taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offer. Shall I accept that from your hand? Cursed be the cheat who is a male in his flock and vows it, and sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. You'll remember that as we opened up Malachi, we came into verse 2, and, and, and most of those things you have heard and likely know about the book of Malachi are called into question with verse 2 of chapter 1. Most people, if you were to walk up to them and probe them and just say, tell me what you know about the book of Malachi, they would say two things. Neither of them great. Two things, though. I think he says something about divorce. And it's generally where our preacher preaches when giving's low, right? Because he says the thing about, about tithes and offering, and you'd push them and say, is that all he says? You're like, well, everything else is kind of an explanation of those two things. I'm pretty sure it's only four chapters. Those are pretty, two pretty big things, and they're kind of downers. And so, yeah, I think that's about all there is in there. We recognize, we remember. This thing starts with this proclamation. God comes to these people who are grumbling, who are upset. They've come back from captivity. They look around. Things aren't great. Their land's not producing. Things aren't great. Their temple's not what their parents had told them it was, what their grandparents had told them it was. What they had in their minds reconstructed from all of this time, all of these accountings, they look at it and say, that's it? That's it? like I remember one Christmas my parents had told me over and over and over again I was going to get rails. I had this, this single cab Ford truck and 
when I was in high school, bed rails were, were really cool. Um, now thinking about it, you know, I drive a Hyundai Sonata, so I'm not sure how rails would work on that. Um, door rails, maybe. And so they told me that they were going to get me rails for Christmas. And I was pretty, well, you know, I was excited about it. And then for Christmas, they had taken a tripod and expanded the legs out of this thing and set it there. And they'd wrapped it all up. My dad said, here are the rails. And so I go over and feel the, the crinkling of the paper. I'm thinking, these are the cheapest things. It's like rails made out of toothpicks. And so I open it up, and in my mind, I created this, this sense of, I've got a fake excitement because it's not appropriate to be a downer on Christmas, right? And so I'm building up this, this, this excitement that I'm getting ready to unleash, and then I open it up, and I'm so thoroughly confused. You see, these Israelites, they weren't confused when they looked at the temple. They were just disappointed. There was no faking it for them. There was no looking at it and saying, oh, man, it's great. This thing's fantastic. And instead, they would look at it and say, this thing's pathetic. This thing's terrible. This isn't what we wanted. This isn't what we expected. This isn't, this isn't what we deserve. All this time in captivity, and this is the best we have? All this time in captivity, and this is the best the land can do? All this time in, in captivity, and this is as big as our nation is? And so when God told them in verse 2, he says, look, I have loved you. They don't believe him. They don't believe him. The amazing thing is, this people that God is giving this proclamation of love to, they're not an easy people to love. These people are just like you and me. This this, this familiarity, it breeds contempt. this, this, This bizarre relationship they have with God, they were tempted to look at it and say that it is mundane. Isn't that the the place that we we find ourselves at too often? So that God would come to them and say, I have loved you. Loving a people that is unlovable, loving a people that, that, that isn't responding in love towards him, loving a people that's not responding in faithfulness towards him. I mean, there is great joy in that for them, and there is great promise in that for us. But the tragic thing is what we see here in 6 through 14 is he turns, and a lot of the weight for who he goes after and who he, he blasts and attacks in this section are the priests. No, no, these are the guys that, that under the line of Aaron, they are supposed to uphold the law. They're supposed to make sure that things flow right. They're supposed to make sure the church is doing what she's supposed to do. These are the guys that are, that are administering in our day the ordinances. They're the ones that are doing all of these things. They're in charge of the temple worship. They're in charge of the sacrifices. They are making sure that they remain orthodox, that they remain in accordance with the law. But look what he says to them. He asks them this question. He offers this general truism in verse 6. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. He's offering a general truism. He says, these things you agree should happen. A son or a child should honor their parents. They'd say, yeah, we can take that. We, We think that. Especially if they have children, they're automatically in favor of that. They say, yes, our children should honor us. 
If they have any servants, they support the next one. Say a servant should honor, should be in fear, should honor their master. And they say, absolutely, we think that that's true. We think that's true. God offers this rebuke. He says, if I'm father, where is my honor? And if I'm master, where is my fear? Recognize that God has responded to them as one who is father and one who is master. But the honor, this fear that they readily give to their own human fathers, it's not there. It's not there. Now you and I read this, and it's just not quite the same way from this Middle Eastern concept that they're in of this honor and shame relationship going back and forth, where honor and shame were so high, were so valued in their society, in their culture. That when we read this, or you see families on TV, or maybe you think about your family, you say, my kids don't honor me. What's the big deal if they don't honor God? See, the way Scripture says it up, it doesn't really matter how it works out in your family. I don't want you hyper-personalizing this. I don't want you thinking, well, my kids don't honor me. I don't honor my parents, and so therefore it doesn't matter that they don't honor God. The Word of God says a child should honor their parents. So God goes to them and said, look, this is how you know the word teaches. But you don't even pay me this honor. You don't even pay me this respect. You don't respond to me the way that you would people that I created. So God responds, he says, if I'm master, where's my fear? O priests who despise my name. Now this is interesting. And the fact that they don't return honor and the fact that they don't return this reverential fear and and respect to God, this is how he categorizes it. He says they are despising his name. Now, let's take a little trip. You'll remember last week we talked about Jacob and Esau, right? And the gift and they come together and... And Esau, he had a case of what we refer to as the hungry grumpies. He comes in and he wants food. He wants this blessing. And so what does he do? He gives over his birthright. He gives over this blessing to his brother because he wants to eat. He wants food. Now, if you flip over to Genesis, where we picked up this story in Genesis 25, 34, getting to the end of this account, speaking of his birthright, it says, thus Esau despised his birthright. The same thing that was said of Esau in Genesis 25, 34 is spoken of the Israelites here in Malachi. Esau came into a room. His stomach was growling. He wanted some of that food. He said, look, I'm about to pass out. What good is a birthright to me? And so he gave it up. He was impetuous. He gave it up for something momentary, for something transitory. And it gets to the end, and the writer of Genesis says he despised it. In essence, he looked at its value and he said, my birthright, my blessing that is mine from birth is of no more value to me than a bowl of soup that won't even be with me tomorrow. And when we take that, we recognize that this, in some sense, is the historical concept that Malachi is recreating in, in our minds, in the, in the minds of those he's speaking to. And we bring that understanding of what it is to despise back into this text. That when they dishonor God, 
that when they don't respond to him appropriately, they consider his blessing, they consider God to be worthless. His name, who he is, to be of no value to them, to be of no consideration to them. Something they can just skip over, kick to the side, and and really give no thought to. So we recognize that as we go through this, that the way we respond to God shows up in what we think of who he is. You see, they despise God, and so the way that they thought of him moves in kind with that. So if you think of God as someone who loves you, someone who transformed your life, then you respond in active, blessed obedience. But when you begin to think of God as some distant taskmaster, you don't respond in love. It would be more like those people in the days of Malachi. They're responding in obedience, kind of. They're doing the right thing, partially. But man, love, that's not going to characterize it. That's not going to characterize their response to God. We need to observe that the way we respond to God is largely a reflection of how we view God. Now look at this. God tells them they've despised his name and they have this response. They essentially look at it. They're taking into account the argument that he's made and they respond and they say, hold on a second. How have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? Friends, they are either aloof, indifferent, or hedging. It'd be like when I walk into one of my children's room and I say, did you just hit your brother? And, and Bryce isn't here, and so I can say this. And so he looks back at me, he's like, no. I don't know why he's crying. And the whole time Graham's saying, Bryce, hit, Bryce, hit. And, and reproducing this motion over and over again and grabbing Legos and like, Bryce, stab, Bryce, kick, Bryce, spit, Bryce, hit. Bryce, make, Graham, bleed. Bryce, did you hit your brother? The evidence doesn't look good, Father, but I'm going to still say, what are you talking about? I mean, that's how they respond. The prophet comes in, and it's not that he doesn't have evidence to show them that they're doing these things, but how do they respond? Us? How have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? This is how God responds. He says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. By offering polluted food upon my altar. Now, this is the interesting thing. Maybe you think of the priest and you say, look, it's not really their fault. They're not the ones that are bringing all of this stuff in. They're not the ones that are in charge and responsible for doing all of these things. It's these people you've given them. It's these people you've given them. But you see, the problem begins with the priests. If you flip over to Leviticus 27, 11, and 12, read these words. And, and if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, he shall stand the animal before the priest. Look out verse 12. And the priest shall value it as either good or bad. 
And as the priest values it, so it shall be. They bring the animal in. The priest sees it. They set it up before him. He looks at it and says, well, it is missing a leg, but it's okay for you. I'm going to let this one pass. I remember a number of years ago, Valerie and I were at the Livestock and Rodeo Show in Houston. And we were walking through, and you know they have all the show calves and bulls and everything in there, and they're, they're prepping and preening them, probably at some point later only to make them into hamburger. But for that moment, they feel special, they feel privileged, and they've got this, this one in there, and it's got a little bit of white down by its foot, a little bit of white down by its foot. And I see this guy take this can, and he is shaking it up. I'm thinking, really, moose? Really, moose? And so he takes it, and he sprays it on there, and it's this red-tinted spray paint. And he is covering the white near the bottom. Now, what these priests are doing, they're coming in, and they're taking these tainted gifts, they're taking these tainted offerings, and they're presenting them and saying, our seal of approval is on this. It's okay. It's okay. God's not interested in all that. It's okay. It's still an animal, after all. They're doing the same types of things. But look how they respond again. With a degree of incredulity, they say, despise your name. Polluted, I don't understand, but they respond and say, how have we polluted you? How have we polluted you? I'd like to see the video evidence of this. How have we polluted you? How has this thing happened? God patient, God kind, he responds. He said, this is how you polluted me. Last part of verse 7, he says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. The substance of their issues are saying that this sacrificial system that is provided for them to have a relationship with God is something to be despised, is something not to be valued, is something to be taken, looked at, and just entered into whatever way you want to. That's how you're polluting my table. That's how you're polluting my altar. They don't like this. And God begins to offer a greater explanation through Malachi of what happens here. He says, when you offer blind animals, verse 8, in sacrifice, is that not evil? Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? So he goes into this description. He says, look, when you offer those that are infirm, aren't you doing something that is a contradiction to those things that you've been instructed to do? Well, we know. If you flip over to Deuteronomy 15, 21, you see an exact word against this. This isn't open for, I don't know, God, your word is just so confusing. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think there might have been something in there about the, the lame, but the blind, though. Come on now. Surely that wasn't in there. But if we flip over to Deuteronomy 15 and verse 21, he says, but if any has a blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it. To the Lord your God. It's interesting, is it not? That the way they were failing, the way that they were following, is an exact affront to the thing that they were told 
not to do. They were so far so distant from the word of God, they were so far so distant from his heart that they were moving in direct contradiction to the way that this thing was supposed to be done. Prescription, it had been given to Moses and passed on to them for hundreds of years. Is it not evil, is his question? Now look what he tells them. He asked them rhetorically twice, is it not evil? Should you not do this, in essence? This is what he tells them to do. He says, this is what I want you to try. I want you to present that same thing, that same gift, that same offering to your governor. Now, Nehemiah was a governor likely before Malachi's time, and so this would be giving it to somebody else, maybe that that the, the Persians had set up to be a responsible party. And so imagine if they took this lamb in there, missing probably its back right leg, blind in the left eye. I don't know why, but that's what it looked like, okay? And so they go in, and they offer it up to him, and he says, there seems to be something wrong with this. And they're like, I don't know. She's wicked fast, and she's got many, many years of productive balancing left ahead of her. He's like, well, she is missing a leg, and she's slightly blind. Like, yes, but that only enhances her sentimental value to you. You're not seeing the positives of this. How do you think that governor's going to respond? You think he's going to look at that and say, man, that's, you're right. I remember as a child, I had a three-legged, half-blind goat myself, and this is what I've been waiting for. How did you know? No, that's not going to happen. They're going to go in. They're going to try and offer that thing. They're going to offer the blind. They're going to offer the lame to him. They're going to walk in. They're going to have this meeting with him. They're going to lay the offering before him. And his response is, what is this? I told you how to pay me. I told you how I accepted payment, and... What is this you bring to me? Now think about us. God asks of us, not that you give, but that you sacrifice. And there's a real, there's a real difficulty here. This is something I played back and forth with this week. You find those on one side of the thing, and they say, look, I don't want to give because I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to make offerings because I don't want to be legalistic. And so they go, they don't give, they don't sacrifice, they don't do anything, and they're living in in this freedom they've created of non-response. And then on the other side, you you have people that set up, and they say, look, I want to give, I want to give programmatically, I want to give directly, And, and they are living really in what this legalism is. And they're seeking to warrant to get the favor of God by giving of these offerings. Both sides are operating incorrectly. Both sides are operating incorrectly. I mean, it is a difficult thing. You see, when they go in there and, and, and they bring this thing in to the governor, and what he's telling them is he's not going to accept something valueless. He's not going to accept something that has no value. You see, God weighs not just the offering, but God is also weighing the one who gives. One of the commentaries I read this week in our men and and people that take up the offering probably would not be down with this, but he said effectively what he's saying is when you put something to give an offering, you're putting yourself in there as well. So imagine that every time one of the deacon or one of the men of the church are walking around, they're carrying an offering plate, as we all just started jumping in there with it, and like, weigh me, man! And so imagine it would be, in essence, going to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory when the little kid stood up on there and he was the bad egg. Remember that? 
Imagine if we had something like that at the back of the sanctuary. So you walk up on this plate, you step onto it, you take your offering, you set it down, everybody says, look, it's a good offering. And then the buzzer goes off and it says, sorry, you're invalidating your act of service or your offering because God evaluates you just as much as he does your gift. So you can't get there by empty legalism. You can't get there by empty obedience because that's where they were. They were giving, not great, but they were giving. He said, imagine if you went into your governor and you tried to give him these types of gifts. Do you think he's gonna accept that? Look what his prescription is in verse nine. All along, these priests have been taking in these offerings that, man, they just don't measure up. They just absolutely don't measure up. Verse nine, he tells the priests. He says, on the basis of these gifts, I want you to now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? He says, look, what I want you to do is is I want you to go to God and say, God, these are the gifts we give you. These are the offerings we make for you. These are the ways we've sacrificed our, our lives. These are the way that we have bent over backwards to be obedient to you. God, bless us because of these gifts. See, the sum and substance of the people's complaint is that God wasn't blessing, he wasn't moving, he wasn't making things happen for them, and he makes an honest account of their gifts, and he says, you you think God's gonna bless you based on these? You think God's gonna move in your presence because he's so wowed and and overwhelmed with your table scraps? Because that's basically what they were giving him. They were giving him the leftovers, the castaways, those things they had no use for, no value for. It was simple, it was easy, and that's what they gave him. And they expected him to respond in kind and to bless them beyond their imagination. And so Malachi calls their bluff. He says, go before God, friend. Go before God and ask him to pour out blessing based upon the things that you're giving. But will he be gracious to you with such a gift from your hand? Will he show favor on any of you? Ask the Lord of hosts. Look, we don't give so we can get. If you're obedient to God because you think somehow that you're going to trick him into blessing the socks off you, And I remember being a child and hearing preachers preach and saying, look, if you will give, give till it hurts. He is going to bless you so tremendously. And they use, here in a couple of weeks, what we're going to talk about in Malachi. And and, and in essence, they put God to the test. And they call people to obedience, not because of God and who he is, but they put God to the test because of what they'll get in return. Man, this is what TV preacher hucksters are great at. There are reasons a lot of these guys can afford air conditioning for their dog houses because they are really good at guilting people into giving money. They're really good at guilting people into giving time. Not asking you to give. We respond to God out of obedience because he loves us. We respond to God and we give sacrificially of our time, 
of, of whatever it is you place value on. Maybe some of you are just loaded. You have more money than God, and, and it's nothing for you. Try to check for a million dollars. I don't know who you are, and, and obviously you're not giving very regularly, but if that's you, man, if that's you, God's not going to bless that gift. God's not impressed. I don't care if every person in this church walks up to you at the end and says, I am just floored with how much money you give to this ministry. Money, for some of you, it's not a sacrifice. Money, for some of you, is an idol. And for that reason, when you give it, you think God's blessing you. And, and, and you've got this spreadsheet going in your mind. You're like, as long as I give more to God, then I give more to my idol. As long as I serve him just a little bit more than I do my bank account, which is what you've idolized, what you've valued. You think he's going to bless you. Some of us mistake full bank accounts. Homes that are paid off. Nice cars for God's blessings. Man, you forget that his presence in your life is the greatest blessing. You forget his abiding presence, his, his just, just feeling him, having this sense of who he is, guiding your steps, being an abiding presence in your life. That's the greatest benefit. That's the greatest blessing he could pour out on you. Whether you're lying sick, dying in a hospital bed, are sitting somewhere on a beach, soaking up the sunshine, enjoying a view, doing either of those things without the provision and presence of his blessing are both empty. So look what he says. That's this little brief aside about the governor, and then verse 10, he says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Couldn't get more dire. It couldn't get worse for them. That when God comes into it and he says, look, this is your heart response to me. This is the way that you respond to me. And you know what? I, I really wish somebody would just come in and shut the doors with bar entrance. Then you walk up to the church, it would say, close for business. Go somewhere else because God hasn't been welcome here for so many years. That's what he's asking them to do. I can't tell you how many churches I preached at when I was in seminary. That I walk in and, and these sanctuaries are unbelievable. I remember one church in particular I walked in, it was fantastically beautiful. Things seated at least a thousand people. Beautiful balcony, amazing pipe organ, fantastic educational space, and 20 people in the church. 20 people in the church. The teen teenager of the group was probably 65, right? Still struggling with issues, hoping for the license the next year or two. The teenager for the group is probably 65. You go in there and you preach and you talk to these people and you say, what happened? 
because y'all didn't build this. And say, well, you know, neighborhoods started changing. Demographics started shifting. I'm thinking, yeah, I drove here. I didn't see a whole lot of signs in English. I said, but what happened to you? Well, we were faithful. And I'm doing pulpit supplies, so I can ask this type of thing, right? I mean, it's 75 bucks and or 150 bucks if they felt especially generous. And so I just say, faithful to who? And then they say, faithful to this church. That's the problem. They were faithful to that church. They were faithful to that building they had attended when no one else did. But what they should have done was follow the prescription in verse 10. The moment they begin to recognize God was no longer welcome, they would be so bold, so courageous to stand at the door and say, if God's not welcome in this place, then neither are we. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the issues of churches in our community and our town will be solved if we took this to heart, if we, when we began to sense that God was no longer welcome, that we wouldn't try and struggle and wade through it, but instead we'd say, look, we can't go into this place, we can't continue to carry his name until we take this seriously. Church has got to be about him. We read over and over again in the New Testament, who died for the church? Jesus. Friends, who died for the church? Say it with me. Jesus. Whose church? Who owns the church? Do we own the church? Man. It's his church. So verse 10, God says, there are one man and one person among you who would recognize my response, my relationship with you, would recognize that it is being violated, would step in, would shut those doors, wouldn't kindle fire, wouldn't make offerings, would step in and say, stop, it stops now. We're not offending the priest, we're offending God. Look at what God says, verse 11. This is terrible. These people are acting irresponsibly towards God. But look what he says in verse 11 of himself. He says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. God evaluates them. He looks at their situation. He looks at the way things are going. And he says, you know what? This doesn't impugn my glory. This doesn't affect my holiness. This doesn't do any damage to my renown because you know what? My name will be famous anyway. He looks to the people called according to his name. He looks to the nation created to be a blessing, Genesis 12, 2. He looks at them. He looks at those people that he took out of the wilderness. He looks at those people he preserved, and he sees them violating every prescription, everything he laid down for them, and he says, this is the reality. My name will be great. 
From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will continue. It won't stop. It won't grow weak. It will always be great forevermore. On the one hand, they've got this word of the Lord coming to them and talking about how terrible, how terribly they've missed it. On the other hand, they have God's promise that he will continue to be worshipped, whether it's them or somebody else. There's this lasting abiding promise. We recognize that the furtherance of God's kingdom doesn't depend on rich rest. Man, it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on you. He can do it without us. But there's this great and blessed invitation that he calls us, that he invites us to join with him, that he asks up to take up the charge alongside him, to follow him and to follow him well, to join him in making his name famous. But look at verse 12. He says, but you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, verse 13, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it and say, the Lord of hosts, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this, this you bring as your offering. He looks at them and says, you look at the whole sacrificial system, and you say it's mundane. You look at my name, which, which is intimately tied with this act of sacrifice and worship, and you say, it's to be despised. They looked at the sacrificial system and said, we can do this however we want. God's response is, you consider me worthless. The way you approach worship, the way you approach sacrificed, sacrifice, You consider me worthless. I see that. I'm not blind like your offerings. Look at this, verse 13. Their response is, what a weariness this is. They were tired of it, y'all. These priests had, had been in charge of the sacrifices. They had been working this job for a long time. Every morning they'd wake up and they'd do the same things. Every time somebody brought in an offering, they'd take it, they'd skin it, they'd separate it, they'd weigh it out, they'd light it on fire. They were tired of it. They saw their role as something cumbersome. They saw their role as something weary. And think about the way that you enter into church attendance. Think about the way that you enter into serving. Think about the way that you enter into being faithful to God in the ways that he's called you and the ways that he's gifted you. You wake up on Sunday morning, how many of us haven't said, what a weariness this is. You stayed up late on Saturday night. You've got a gaggle of kids to get dressed and out the door. You're tired. So, man, you, you know, you, you miss Sunday school. You stroll in 20 minutes late to the service. 
You leave 10 minutes early. The difficulty is that we get stuck in the same cycle. We look at obedience, we look at trying to be a Christian, trying to respond to God appropriately, and we fall into the same thing. I'm not trying to call any of you out. I don't look at, at attendance numbers, I don't look at giving numbers in terms of what each one of you give or how often each one of you come. I don't want to know. But God knows. He knows how much is in your bank account. He knows how much you're capable of. He knows your time and how much more or less you're capable of giving to the furtherance of his kingdom. He knows how hard you work at work in sharing the gospel. He sees every interaction you have and knows when you just politely say, you have a good day too, and walk away as quickly as possible because you are scared to death sharing the gospel. Every time we do that, we despise his name. I never want to push you towards legalism. I never want to do that. There's no joy, there's no favor in that. God doesn't bless a legalistic, empty response to him. God blesses. God responds when we respond in faithfulness to him. When we respond to his movement of love towards us, he responds in love. He continues that love towards us. Look at the danger here. They think it's mundane. They think it's ordinary. And what started in the priesthood has made it all the way down to the people. God says in verse 14, he says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. God said, this is the danger. When the leadership in the church, when the priests try and shortchange the system, when the priests come in and they say, it's okay, we'll take this one on the slide. It makes its way to the people. The heart response of the priests is infectious and these people have a move towards lethargy and they respond because it feels so much better. And so they make these great vows. They say, look, I'm going to give all of this money. I'm going to give this great specimen of, of a sheep. And it shows up and they're like, who's this? They're like, well, this is his cousin. Same bloodlines though. It's, you know, it's good. It's just kind of last year's model. That's, it's, you know, we were hungry. We ate his last leg. It's made its way all the way down through the people. What starts in the priesthood works its way down to the people. And we come to the New Testament. We recognize that we all exist in some sense as priests, right? In that we are able to approach the throne. We're not operating through an intermediary outside of Christ. He is our intermediary. How we think of God affects how we serve God and our response to him. But look at how God changes this whole thing. Look at how God changes this whole thing. In terms of the sacrifice and it being mundane, God does something decidedly different. He, he comes in and he changes this whole thing. And Philippians 2 gives us this brief picture of it. Speaking of Christ who is the eternal sacrifice, he says that Christ... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even 
death on a cross. Recognize that, that, that God saw the heart response of these people moving further and further away. That he sent his son to be the once and for all sacrifice so that his sacrifice would stand. Recognize that the author of Hebrews addressing this subject of sacrifice wrote these words in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. He wrote these words and, and, and it's just this amazing word of Christ as the high priest. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. It's this amazing idea of who Jesus is and how he operates. Now, the people would come in, they would offer this sacrifice, the priest would go in and he would, would administer it on their behalf. But the author of Hebrews again gives us this picture of exactly what Jesus did in Hebrews 10 starting in verse 11. He says, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never, never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ comes in, he offers himself as a sacrifice. And when he finishes, he sits down at the right hand of God in a steady declaration that it is finished. The reason God calls us to offer sacrifices to him of, of work, of labor, of finance, is out of a love response to what he has done for us. He calls us to respond to him in kinds of the way that we think of him. How you respond to God is largely a reflection of how you view him. So the option before you today, do you view him in the sacrifice that he made through Christ as something mundane, as something trivial? Or do you recognize it as this love motivation, this sacrifice of love which was met out through sacrifice, which was presented to you and, and wooed you into salvation. Let me pray for us.